0: I often look up in a commentary or some kind of book before I read just to give me some background and maybe might help you. And I thought, I went to reach, I thought, no, I don't even need to do that. Because when you listen to this passage, it's pretty clear. There is knowing what Jesus said and then doing it here in South Walton or wherever you come from, wherever home is. So let's listen and open our eyes and our ears. But when the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and gave you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters... You were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: So I was once smacked away from the dinner table. Actually, more than once. But there's one time in particular that I want to share with you today. I wasn't abused. You don't have to call children's services all these years later. But my parents believed in that proverb, spare the rod, spoil the child, so I was not spoiled. And besides that, we were quite poor. Uh, My dad would work multiple jobs in the mills to uh, pay the bills. My mother cared for my younger brother, who was very ill as a child. And so we kind of just got by, and I would go to school with patches on my jeans and hand-me-down tennis shoes and holes in my shoes. And sometimes our uh, socioeconomic condition would make itself manifest at the dinner table. And so on like the fifth night in a row that we had macaroni and cheese and fish sticks, I lamented to my mother, fish sticks again? And you know her answer. You've probably told your children this at some point. You ought to be thankful that you've even got anything to eat. There are. So the clever young boy that I was, I answered her retort and said, well, why don't you pack up my fish sticks and send it to them? Because I can't eat another right in the kisser. (laughs) Fish sticks taste real good with a fat lip. (laughs) I wasn't very thankful. But a few days later, a couple weeks later, I became quite thankful. There's a man that my dad worked with. His name was Bobby Gentry. Bobby has passed on now. And Bobby was the kind of guy that would slide my dad a handful of $20 bills on Friday. And he would say this to my dad, you take this home to your family. Your family needs it more than my church. And he would call my dad and say, I got an extra job this weekend if you want to make a little more money. He was always just trying to help out. Well, he showed up at my house on a Saturday morning looking like I would never seen him before. I'd always seen him in overalls, coveralls, or blue jeans. He's a working man. He showed up at my house wearing a suit. This is like 1979, so it was a hideous polyester light blue suit, but it was a suit, collars about this wide. And he had three men in the car with him. They were all wearing suits. And then another car pulled up behind them, four more men. They're all wearing suits. And they started unloading armfuls of groceries into our house. I thought it would take an hour before they would finish. Decades later, I would become three or four of those men, their pastor, and I would speak the eulogies over their graves. And I would tell that story. They had all forgotten me. I was just a little nerdy, Coke-bottled, wearing glasses, little kid. But I never, ever to this day forgot the kindness they showed. Just groceries. Wasn't Christmas, wasn't Thanksgiving, wasn't anybody's birthday. Here's some help. I'm also thankful there wasn't a single fish stick in any of those <laughs> bags. What did those men do that day? I believe they served Christ that day. And not because anyone in my family was miraculously converted by transubstantiation into the presence of Christ. But Jesus was present that Saturday morning. Because Jesus is always present where there is need Jesus is always in with and comes as the needy always our scripture reading this morning is uh, a perennial biblical text to this effect and it is a startling text a parable that shows us who and where Jesus is And it is a parable that calls us as his followers to find him, to see him, to encounter the living Christ, not at a communion table, not at a prayer bench, not in a church building. We find Jesus in who Jesus called the least of these. Well, who are these least? They are the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, those are all the overlooked, unsupported, helpless, and weak. We like to speak of Jesus in our hearts. We like to speak of Jesus in our midst. But Jesus isn't so much in here as Jesus is out there. We don't take Jesus so much to the world as we meet Jesus in the world among the poor, the destitute, And the defenseless. Bob Dylan got as close to anyone when he wrote a song called Chimes of Freedom. You might hear it tonight if you come back. I don't know. These bells chime for the warriors whose strength is not to fight. For the refugees on the unarmed road of flight. For each and every underdog soldier in the night. Tolling for the aching whose wounds cannot be nursed. For the countless confused, accused, misused, strung out ones, and worse. And for every hung up person in the whole wide universe is the chimes of freedom flashing. These are the people that you find Jesus in. Will Campbell was a Mississippi Baptist preacher who worked extensively in the civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s. He died a few years ago. He liked to describe himself as a bootleg preacher. I don't know exactly what that means, but I like it. And he gave a sermon once critiquing the invitation as it is given in most revivalistic churches. He said this, Those of us who are acquainted with such invitations know that at the end of the sermon, the preacher invites people who want to commit their lives to Christ to come down the aisle and indicate that desire. I hope that someday there will be an evangelistic service in which When the preacher gives the invitation and people start coming down the aisle, he yells back at them, don't come down here to me. Go to Jesus. Don't come down the aisle, go to Jesus. And then the people who were coming down the aisle turn around and get in their cars and drive away. He then yells at the rest of the congregation, why are you still hanging around here? Why don't you go to Jesus too? Why don't you all go to Jesus? And the people rise in mass and quickly leave the church. And soon the parking lot is empty. What I imagine is that about a half hour later, the telephone at the police station starts ringing off the hook. And the voice at the other end says, we're down here at the old folks' home, and there's some crazy people at the door yelling that they've come to visit Jesus. And I keep telling them that Jesus ain't here. All we have are a bunch of old ladies. (laughs) But they keep saying that they want to visit Jesus. The next call comes from the warden down at the prison. He's saying, send some cops down here. There's a bunch of nuts at the gate. And they're yelling and screaming, let us in, let us in. We want to see Jesus. We want to visit Jesus. But I keep telling them that all we have in this place are murderers and rapists and thieves. But they keep saying, we want to visit Jesus. The phone rings again. This time it's the superintendent of the mental hospital calling for help. He's complaining that there are a bunch of weirdos outside begging to be let in. They, too, want to see Jesus. And the superintendent says, I keep telling them that Jesus isn't here. All we have here are a bunch of sick patients. But they keep yelling at us that they want in to see Jesus. You really won't find Jesus in heaven reclining back on a cloud. He's not so much in the church on Sunday morning sitting in the pews. He isn't locked away in a a Vatican, or held hostage by some seminary, Jesus is sitting this morning in an emergency room. He's an uninsured, undocumented child who needs healing. He is behind bars, a number now more than a name, completely alone. He is homeless, evicted from his apartment, waiting in line at the shelter for a bed and a cup of soup. He is a teenager living in government housing, stripes of abuse on his body, a growl in his stomach, angry at the world. He's an old forgotten man at the nursing home who thinks, who no one thinks of anymore other than just, it's a body taking up a bed. He's a refugee fleeing Syria or El Salvador, living in squalor. He is an abused and molested child who falsely feels responsible for the evil that has been perpetuated against her is a young woman who hates herself for the decisions that she has made, decisions that have imperiled her life, but she did the best that she could put between impossible choices. Jesus is anyone without power, without ability or the means to help themselves, and he beckons us to come to him, not on some do-gooding crusade, but in solidarity and embrace with the least of these. St. Vincent de Paul, great Catholic advocate for the poor. And his, his society perseveres to this day all over the world, helping the poor. Once he was in church and he had delivered his homily and he was standing over the communion table. And someone came into the chapel and said, Father Vincent, there's a beggar outside who needs help. And Vincent said this, Then I am leaving Jesus, speaking of the Eucharist, as Jesus, living in his heart, and going to Jesus, the poor man outside. I leave Jesus as Jesus to go to Jesus. That was how real his understanding of this single parable was, because Jesus had come to him in the form of the poor. It's hard for us to call Jesus Lord and not be conduits, of compassion in this world. It's not that it's hypocrisy when we don't act that way, it's just simply not doable. My friend Ezra Anin, who is our Jewish guide when we go to the Holy Land, he just has a hoot over how we Southern Americans try to pronounce Hebrew words. In fact, I changed my entire theological arc of my education to go after a little bit different degree just so I could get away from the second year of Hebrew. I hate it. It's it's the hardest thing I've ever put my mind to. I'm not interested in it anymore. I'll read a commentary and let somebody else do the translation for me. But it's hard enough as an English speaker to speak Hebrew, and then when you throw a good, how y'all doing, in there with it, it really doesn't help. So he just loves to make fun of that. We were on our way one day to this place. How do you say that? Wrong. I know where a thousand Bethel Baptist churches are. And that's how we all say it in Bethel. The proper pronunciation is Beth L almost like two words. It is two words. Beth means house. L means God, the house of God. And he said to me once, how do you say that back home? I said, Bethel. And I know I'm pronouncing it wrong. And he said, It's not that you're pronouncing it wrong. You're just using a completely different word. That's what has stuck with me. And sometimes we look at what we call Christianity and we call it Christianity. And it's not that we're mispronouncing or misrepresenting. We're using a description for our faith that isn't Christianity at all. Because a a Christianity that does not take the side of the poor and the weak and the hungry and the abandoned, and the hurt, and the mistreated. A Christianity that does not get on the side of the least of these. It might be religion, but let's not call it Christianity. Because Jesus shows his solidarity, literally his incarnation with those who have nothing left to offer. Well, if those people had done right, they wouldn't be in jail. Hmm. But for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. Well, I don't know why they let these poor people panhandle down here at the beach. That'll run the tourist off. You know, these sick people that go to the hospital without any insurance, all they do is drive up our cost for everybody. These foreigners just need to go back wherever the hell they came from. Easy, easy, tread, oh, so easy. One day we will stand before almighty God. And we will not have our middle class dispositions to fall back on. We will not have our pension or our race, We will not have our voting record, We will not have everything that we think that we are right about. We will have the answer to one single question. What did you do when you encountered the least of these, my brothers and my sisters? Are you saying I have to work my way into God's kingdom? Of course not. All you need is faith. But if you have faith, if it's a living, Jesus-infused, God-honoring, love-baptized faith, it will make a difference in how you live and in how you treat those who can do nothing to ever return the favor. A dramatic story from Jewish historian Yaffa Eliak. Yaffa's work ultimately found a home in the United States Holocaust Museum. She was born in Lithuania and was a child when the Nazis overtook her village in 1941. An SS death squad would accompany the Nazi army through Lithuania, and after the army had, con- had conquered the area, the SS squad would set up camp and begin to extinguish and exterminate every Jew living in those villages. In her one village alone, 3,000 men, women, and children every person literally that she knew was taken to the edge of town, stripped of all their clothing, lined up in front of a trench and shot and dumped into a mass grave. From her account comes the story of a young man named Zvi Michalowski. Michalowski survived the Holocaust. Here he is in his school photo. He's probably nine years old, circled there in that group in the early 30s. Take a take a look at that school photo. You can see the teachers and all the students. By 1941, only four people in this picture would survive. Four. Zeevy survived in a sort of miraculous way. By this time, he was 16 years old. He was with one of the groups to be executed. They march him out to the trench. They disrobe him. He's standing there with his family and his friends and the guards raise their guns to fire and he falls back into the trench milliseconds before they pull the trigger alive. But he's beneath all of his neighbors in the gore and the blood. He lies there for hours. Finally at dark he crawls out of the grave and he begins to go door to door to the Christian families in the village. And at every door he is told the same thing. Go back to your grave Jew. He gets to the last house. There's an old widow woman who lives there. He knocks on the door. She comes to the door. She gives the same response. Go back to your grave Jew. And in a moment of divine inspiration. Zivi says to her. Do you not know me? I am your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I have come down from the cross to visit you. Look at this blood. Look at my nakedness. Look at my innocence. Don't turn me away. And the woman was struck as if by lightning. She falls to her knees. She begins to kiss Zivi's feet, crosses herself, begs God for forgiveness, and brings him into her home where she would care for him for the next three days. And like Jesus coming out of the grave, that three days later she sent him off into the woods with all the provisions that he would need. He would join the underground resistant movement. And today Zevia is almost 100 years old. Do I believe in my heart that Jesus showed up at that widow lady's house? Yes, I do. As certain as Jesus of Nazareth walked the hills of the Holy Land, Christ himself some way inhabited that child when he knocked at the door. Because Jesus is always with those in need, always. Tomorrow, you'll get your chance to meet Jesus. Maybe not as dramatic as Zvi's story, but just as certain He will be the child, sick and feverish, stuck on his mother's hip, a mother who can't afford the prescription that would heal that body. He will be an old man in a retirement home who was once a brave soldier, once a titan of business, but who is now so lonely and alone. He will be a Honduran handyman who shows up to repair something at your house, afraid and nervous because his papers aren't in order, but he's trying to feed his kids. He is your neighbor. The one just down the street, she goes to bed every night in terror because it might be the night that her violent husband takes her life. Jesus re-enters the world day after day after day after day in the nobodies of society. And if you want to meet Jesus where he is, you go to the least of these. And you'll see him face to face. You can't... Undo all that is wrong in the entire world. You can't serve everyone. You can't dry every tear or reform every system that keeps the least of these least. But you can love and serve those who are within your reach. And tomorrow, even today, Jesus will be close enough for you to touch.